Hello, everyone. Today's podcast is a bonus tech talk, which has nothing to do with cartoons. We invite friends of the show, Tim Groves and Thomas Revore, to sit in and talk about computer hardware. The show begins right after this. The Webcast Beacon Network has been covering and promoting creativity and the creative process since 2007, starting with the Webcomic Beacon, a topical webcomics podcast with a jovial bunch of misfits like your local morning radio show. Also, the Webcomic Beacon Newscast, recaps, reviews, and discussions of community and industry news relative to comic creators, especially of digital distribution. Also, the Tropecast, the ever-tangential discussion of literary and visual memes. And finally, Web Fiction World. Before webcomics, there was independent and self-published web-released written fiction and literature. Find this all at webcastbeacon.com. Be sure to grab a master RSS feed or master iTunes feed and not miss a thing. Hey, welcome Animation Aficionados fans. This is a little offbeat episode where we're going to talk about technology and personal computing and all that good stuff. Uh, so I'm your host, Ben, with my co-host, TV's Mr. Neil. Tell Grimlock about Petro Rabbits again. And we have with us our two, uh, our two uh, panelists, uh, Thomas Revore and Tim Groves. How's it going, eh? I got pulled away from a showing of Transformers movie, The Good One, for this. <laughs> oh, you mean the 1980s animated one? Yeah. The one that does not have a Baybot in sight. <laughs> okay, I think Tim and Tom are going to bond a little bit here. <laughs> okay, uh, so personal computing, personal computing. Uh, I guess we had to start with the Apple One, which was basically just a motherboard, right? Well, a little more than that. The Apple One was actually motherboard, memory, uh, wooden case. I mean, it was a it was a homebrew system. I mean, you included your you used your own TV, uh, hooked up your own keyboard, but yeah, it was a do-it-yourselfer. And even then, it was still sold. It was one of the first homebrew, I mean, first real computers to be sold. First one to actually have a monitor to be sold. Hmm. It's also notable for being about the first computer out there that had uh, color capabilities with no additional cards required. It was a single-board machine. It did everything on one motherboard, except disk access, but nobody had disk drives back then. Yeah, it was a piece of engineering genius from the Waz. So we're not going to talk about the, the Altair? The Altair was still, I mean, it was basically switches that you flipped and punch tape that you read. <laughs> yeah, it didn't even have a keyboard. Not by default. You had to buy a separate terminal to hook up to the thing. And, I mean, this was the old-style terminals. I mean, basically, a, a, electro, a computerized keyboard, uh, typewriter. It wow. used the same. It used the same keyboard and typewriter keys. Yeah. By the time you were done building the Apple One, you had a computer that a human being could use. By the time you finished building the Altair, you had to run out and buy more stuff before even a genius could use it. But the, Bill Gates did program for it, so it couldn't didn't need geniuses. Well, what about the... Uh... One thing I remember from watching the uh, Triumph of the Nerds documentary, which uh, some people tell me, you know, has varying levels of honesty in it, that uh, that there was this one guy in the room at like uh, this college that was able to figure out by messing with the switches of the the Altair to uh, to like put it to put like a a radio on it and just by the white noise from the uh, different circuits turning on or off to make the thing play music. Oh, yeah, I did that with my old uh, ColecoVision Atom. And I did the same thing with the Commodore 64 uh, by 
they actually had a program out there that would use the programmable floppy drive. It was a smart drive rather than the dumb ones, which the IBMs used, to spin at different speeds and play Daisy Daisy. Oh, God. <laughs> so let's get to the uh, the Apple one. Of course, uh, you know, Wozniak, an engineering genius and all around, from what I've heard from people that have actually met him, a very approachable guy. Very nice guy. Wonderful guy. Okay, so let's talk about the Apple II, where Apple really, uh, you know, came into form, you know? Yeah, the Apple II was really the first all-in-one computer. I mean, you still had to hook up your own monitor to it, but, I mean, everything was there, and Woz built, still built it for homebrew and hackers. Um, one of the big stories about the Apple II was that uh, Jobs did not want any expandability, he did want not, not want ports in there. Uh, it's one of the things that Waz stepped up for and stood up against, so they still had the expandable ports, and that made a big difference. Yeah, when, when uh, you could, you know, the machine didn't arrive with a floppy drive controller, but you could just run it out, buy one, pop it in there, watch it work. Same with the hard drive controller that went in slot seven, if I recall. Yep. Back and at, oh, one of the old parts, parts, drives, ports. But yeah, I mean, using ribbon cables for the uh, extension port cables. I mean. This was, by nowadays, very primitive, but, I mean, it was quantum leaps above anything else that was out at the time. Yeah, there was a reason they were so expensive. Because, yeah, for the price of an Apple II, without any add-ons, you could buy a full Commodore 64 system. But that Apple II is going to slap the C64 for performance. Yep. And if they had the same CPU, they're both based on the 6502. Well, that's one thing I remember from uh, when they were interviewing... The was about the engineering of it. You know, he was he was reading manuals that people had about these chips, and he was figuring out ways like I can have this one chip do the job of three chips. And you know, he was able to like eliminate all this extra you know girth that many other manufacturers were just putting on those boards. Exactly. I mean, if, if there was one thing that was 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 he was a genius at streamlining. One of my favorite hacks on the original Apple II board, and actually, I think they carried it right on up to the Apple IIe was that the video timing signal also served to refresh the DRAM chips. Mm -hmm. As opposed to having to stop the CPU to refresh all the DRAM some couple of hundred times per second, like the Commodore 64 had to do. So one reason why the Apple II would slap the C64 for performance. I mean, remember the C64 came out several years after the uh, Apple II. Uh, Even the IBM, with their first home release of the IBM PC Junior. I mean, which was, yeah. There was a dog. <laughs> uh, to say that it was a dog is being compliment. I mean, chiclet keyboard. Oh, God. I mean, uh, one five and a quarter drive. Uh, I mean, this thing was... One five and a quarter inch single-sided, single-density drive. 160K. Yeah. Wow. But, uh, but that was okay because the machine only had 128K. Yep. But the era of the Apple II was a pretty long era computer-wise, wasn't it? I mean, Absolutely. Even after the introduction of the Macintosh, uh, the Apple II was still the cash cow for Apple. Much to Jobs' disgust. And uh, let's, In let's fact, talk... they introduced the advanced uh, version, the Apple II GS. I had one of them, sweet machine, Yep. that uh, outperformed the Macs of the day, had a color graphical user interface, which the Macs did not. Oh, Jobs was very unhappy with that development. So let's talk about one of my one of my favorite uh, blunders. The uh, you know it's but let's talk about the people involved. Uh, I mean these were the years where 
where what happened was, uh, you know, around this time, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but this was around when, when the Waz had his uh, plane accident and he had to step away from Apple for a while. And uh, Yeah, that was in the early 80s. Uh, it actually wasn't that long before the Macintosh division start, uh, started up. And, the, you know, the nicest way of putting it, then all of a sudden the inmates were running the asylum. <laughs> because no, the Waz... no, it wasn't nearly that organized. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, but then I mean, people like to pile on jobs about it. Uh, I mean, I, I read his biography; very interesting piece of work. And him or it, the biography? Both. Yes. Both. <laughs> I mean, to say that he was a genius in his own way. I mean, was he a technology genius like the was? No, but he was a genius in his own way. Well, he was a marketing genius. He he took the Mac and managed to convince people to buy it. Yeah. Despite <laughs> the fact that every every person, like every nerd out there, jeered at the silly thing. Because but let's face also, it, it was it was a toy. It wasn't a proper computer. But it was also the first thing to really. I mean, Xerox really dropped the ball with the GUI interface. The Macintosh oh, yeah. is what set the standard from that point forward. But uh, let's let's talk really briefly about uh, one of my favorite technological blunders at the Apple III. And if I remember correctly, Waz, <laughs> Waz was not involved with this with this uh, with this lemon at all, was he? No. No. But then, I mean, the Apple III and the Lisa were basically the same machine. Oh, God. And both were failures. I mean, both were overly expensive. Both were slow. Um, it's neither one were a pretty machine. But uh, what I love was I was actually reading interviews from people who were, you know, engineers at Apple at the time. One guy who was actually in charge of working on, you know, laying out the circuit boards. Jobs walked in and had him change the whole layout because he didn't think it looked pretty. And remember, Jobs is not, an, you know, a, a computer engineer. And uh, and they had them take out the case fans because he, they didn't like the case fans. And uh, Tim, tell tell the best part about the Apple III. Oh, the, this is probably the funniest moment in computer documentation history. The Apple III, because of its lack of cooling, suffered from chip creep to an extreme degree, to the point where your chips would walk right out of the sockets, probably on a weekly basis. (laughs) And the manual that came with the computer instructed the user that if the machine stopped booting up properly, to pick it up, hold it about six inches above the desk, and drop it. Percussive maintenance, and it's right there in the manual. <laughs> I mean, never, never mind that the thing had an internal floppy drive, and you would completely pooch the uh, <laughs> the, the, the drive's uh, balance. I'm, you know, yeah, yeah it, it throw it out of alignment in a hurry. But I mean, all it could have been avoided just by putting a fan in it. Yeah, I, of I, course, I, Commodore was, was he Commodore was very anti fans. I mean, he didn't want anything distracting from the experience of using the computer. And the noise from the fans was one of the things that he was really against. Well, it certainly was a good design decision, wasn't it? Made people buy more and more Apple threes. Oh, yeah. wait, nobody bought the silly thing. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, just as bad, I mean, was the pricing scheme. The pricing scheme on the Apple three, when compared with the two, I mean, there wasn't that much of a benefit, but there was a, a substantial increase in price for it. It just wasn't worth it. There was no benefit. Yeah. Um, the Apple, the Apple three was a sixty five oh two base machine, but it didn't use the sixty five co two that was used in the Apple two, which provided it with better bag switching capabilities. It used the Cinertech sixty five oh two a, which was a piece of crap. Yep. It was still a sixty five oh two compatible machine, though. It was essentially it was an Apple two, 
except with no heat sinks, a built-in floppy that got knocked out of alignment by the instructions in the manual, a crummier keyboard, and a performance hit. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was was himself basically said the big thing about the Apple III was that it was designed by the marketing department, not the engineering department. Well, it saved the Apple II for another decade. Yep. And, uh, you know, I get most of my information from this era from, you know, the Triumph of the Nerds documentary that ran on PBS about a decade and a half ago. And and, the Pirates of Silicon Valley movie, which the law says is about 90% accurate. Yeah. Uh, it's probably closer to 80%, and they did leave out some of the best stories because people just wouldn't believe them. <laughs> yeah, that's the truth. <laughs> so what's what's the next era you'd all like to talk about? Well, we've talked extensively. Well, actually, we haven't really heavily talked about the 8-bit era. Uh, we've completely skipped over uh, um, Commodore and Jack Tremiel's travails there and at, at, at Atari. And yeah, I'm I back from he... the pets to the VIC-22, the C64. Yeah, and the C64 is worth talking about because it is the single best-selling model of computer ever. Absolutely. I mean, the C64, I mean, people may talk about it. I think it really, as much as I love the Apples, the C64 was introduced the home market to computing more than anything else. It was, oh, yeah, almost everybody and their dog had one of those things. Yeah, it was an all-in-one system. You just plugged into your TV uh, it came with basic and came with the functionality you needed. And at, right off the bat, you could start learning. Yep. For games, you could buy cartridges for it, same as your old uh, video game systems. Yep. Or I mean, Now, the Atari 40, 400 had a really big jump on that because I believe you could just take a 2600 cartridge and drop it in the front. So if you had the old Atari nope, 2600. The 400 and the 800 had two proprietary cartridge slots. Uh, the 400 had one because had, you had your left and your right cartridge slots. And they used proprietary cartridges, which were only usable on the four and eights. Oh, did they? Okay, my mistake. Yeah, I had the I had the eight hundred XL growing up. My dad my dad made the conscious decision to get the eight hundred XL over the Commodore sixty four. He made a mistake. I mean, the, he, the Ataris were not bad systems, um, but they weren't great systems either. And the C sixty four had just like a lot of the game systems nowadays had the advantage because there was so much out there for it. Tons of software, yeah. And Commodore and Jack Tramiel made one very, very smart move. It might have been the smart move of his career. It might have been the only smart move of his career. When he brought out the uh, Commodore 128, he included a fully backwards compatible mode that allowed it to run C64 games. Yep. And that was the only reason that computer sold anything. Well, I mean, even, it, I, absolutely. I mean, allowing you to have the backwards compatibility mode. But, I mean, to me, I also loved it because it was the first Commodore to actually have an 80-column screen. You need a special hardware for that. You, it was no more just hooking it up to your TV. But, yeah, that was a yeah, nice you had feature. A proprietary monitor. But it was so much – well, actually, you could. there was a software hack that allowed you to run the 80-column on a TV. Uh, it wasn't that clear, but you could run it. Hmm. Wasn't aware of that. Yep. Wow. But uh, – yeah, the, the, the Commodore's designs were good. Uh, the biggest problem with Commodore was Jack Tramiel, because yeah. he, he was the one that started the, the whole price war on the home computer market, to the point where computer companies were selling these machines and taking a $100 hit. Wow. Yeah, and expecting to make it back on software, except that because all of the companies were doing this, um, it Commodore. was kind of hard to unify the software. 
Commodore and Apple also had what was probably the smartest marketing move ever, and that was having special deals with selling to the educational systems. Schools were buying Apple IIs and Commodores because they were effective, and they got discounts when buying it. The IBM systems didn't. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. This is a weird tangent, but wasn't Commodore 64 the one that had a commercial with uh, with the fourth doctor? No, that was the uh, Prius computer, a British uh, make. And uh, it was a mini computer. It was built into a desk. It weighed about a half a metric ton. And <laughs> it had 8K of RAM and ran at something like 750 kilohertz. So, But it was also a full generation before the Commodore 64. Okay, I was just wondering because I remember seeing that commercial once. And... No, Commodore ha- hired Bill Shatner instead. <laughs> he did the... Uh, he did the commercial for the Commodore VIC-20. And I but believe... I thought Atari hired Bill Plimpton, so... Or, so. <laughs> I, I believe both of you are not fans of, of uh, William Shatner. Um, you know what? I will admit I enjoyed watching him as Captain Kirk, but that role was meant to be played over-the-top, chewing the scenery, large ham. <laughs> See him in almost anything else, is like, oh, go back to Star Trek, Bill. <laughs> yeah, I, I liked him as T.G. Hooker. <laughs> But, I mean, I like the characters he played, but William Shatner himself, uh, let's just say that I would be booted off the air for using the language that would need to describe him. Yeah, I'm ashamed to admit he is Canadian. <laughs> so uh, On the plus side, though, we also got Jimmy Doing, so. Yeah. <laughs> so what's the next era of personal computing? Well, after the big market war between the 8-bits... Uh, this, uh, sorry, IBM managed to grab a hold of probably 60% of the market, and we came into the era of the 16-bits, which, which was a grace note. I mean, 16-bits well, were in, and then they were out again. Let's talk about the reason why IBM grabbed the big share of the market. It was because of something that Jobs absolutely refused to do, and that's the clones. <clears throat> yeah. You know, people were using IBM styles and IBM chips and IBM designs, Without real, having to pay IBM. Well, the biggest the biggest reason why IBM had to do that was uh, this was from the uh, Triumph of the Nerds documentary. A guy from IBM actually explained why he made that decision was they because was he did a study and he found that it took two months to ship internally in IBM an empty box. They had no they they were gonna not exist if they didn't have a personal computer market. <laughs> so they had to do something. So they they decided to take off the shelf parts and and just to have an OS. Well, the beauty of the IBM PC design scenario was that they basically rounded up about 30 engineers and they put them in a, in a building by themselves and said, give us a computer. We need to get in on this whole personal computer crap. And then they left them alone. Yeah, letting engineers do what engineers do is probably going to be the best thing you can do in technology. Now, as soon as a marketing guy gets sticks his nose in there, uh, you're going to be – yeah, you're going to be – detrimental to your system i mean we talked about the apple three and the lisa and those were designed by marketing guys who told the engineers what they needed yeah and as a result uh have you ever seen one yeah i saw one behind glass once at a museum that's it (laughs) (laughs) now i used an apple three and i was not impressed did you have to do the six inches thing tom no um but i knew about it because i was selling them at the time oh this was the mid-80s Wow, I didn't know you were selling them. I was one of the first ones. I mean, I was selling a Lisa. I was one of 
the first ones to sell a Macintosh in the area that I was at the time. Wow. Yeah. So, okay, so the 16-bit era started with the, the IBM and the IBM clones. and Yeah, and the interesting thing about that is that Intel had come out with the uh, 8086 microprocessor at, at about the same time that IBM was looking at their at building a PC. But the engineers wanted to hold out for uh, the Motorola 68K, which was a 32-bit chip. So 32-bit chips were already appearing on the horizon when the 16-bit era really started which is why the 16-bit era was so short. But they were operating under a time deadline, and the Motorola 68K did not come into existence until about a year after the IBM PC started selling. So they went with the 8086 instead. And even then, they nerfed it down more to get the price down. They went with the 8088, which had an 8-bit external bus. 16-bit inside, but when talking to the computer, it was only an 8-bit. Wow. So... You know, calling it a 16-bit is being slightly kind. Well, it's the same type of things that, uh, I mean, part of it is the weakest link. Well, it will always slow down to that. But take a look at some of the video game systems of the eras as well, well a little later, uh, where they would advertise 16-bit, 32-bit, 64-bit, even though one part of it, maybe one chip may be running at that speed, but the rest of the motherboard and the bus was running a much slower system. Yeah. it's all It was all a marketing thing. But at the very least, uh, it pretty much put paid to the uh, to the eight bit market. The introduction of the uh, I, not the IBM PC itself, but yeah, the cloning, pretty much turned the world to IBM, except for the few Apple holdouts that were trying to figure out what platform Apple was going to come out with next. With the cloning, I mean, it brought the cost of the IBM systems down unbelievably to make it more affordable. The only thing that was cheaper was the C sixty fours, but which the- is why they were still selling. Exactly. <laughs> But the C64s were primarily looked at as, you know, they were home systems, they were toys. They were not business machines, as opposed to the international business machine computer. Well, if they looked at what the uh, what Commodore's full name was, Commodore Business Machines, but then you're looking at the pets and CBMs. <laughs> Strange machines, those. And, of course, we are missing one big thing from the early era. What's that? We haven't talked about the TRS-80s. Oh, the trash 80s. <laughs> <laughs> Which was actually, I mean, it was the first, because of the range of Radio Shack, it was the first one that was really known on to the general public. Well, it was actually two different systems. They had, there was the TRS-80 and then there was the Coco, which well, was the also was released later. I uh, know, it was, it was a nicer machine, actually. Yeah, I mean, the TRS-80, TRS one, oh God, the twos and then the threes, the three wasn't that bad. They were all horrible to program and work with, but <clears throat> they at least were available. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they were basically uh, business machines as well. Yes. Uh, VisitCalc, the first spreadsheet, was actually written for the Trash 80 before anything else. And, you know, again... VisitCalc became the killer app for Apple. And what I remember again from that uh, Triumph of the Nerds documentary was the programmers of the creators of VisiCalc were talking to an accountant friend of theirs, and uh, they showed them how you could do one change and the whole spreadsheet changes. And this guy says, "That's a whole week's work." Yeah, that's uh, I, and that's that's where VisiCalc really cleaned up. Was uh, now, yeah, it was available first on the Trash Eighty, which, by the way, had a sixty-four column screen, which is just weird, but. Uh, it got ported quick to the Apple II, and that's what caused Apple IIs to fly off the shelves into businesses. 
was the fact that, I mean, they could get VisiCalc on it. Uh, the Apple II, uh, starting with the Plus, had 80-column capability, and it was standard in the E and C. So 80 columns plus we've got a killer spreadsheet, plus there was a very good word processing suite available for it, meant those things just sold. But, uh, no, I mean, the Trash 80 itself, I don't think, had much market penetration. I mean, it was there. It was, it was good for its day. It was very good for its day. Uh, well, actually, it's good for its half a day. <laughs> but I think more people are familiar with uh, with the Coco line than the uh, the actual Trash 80, which, for some strange reason, also get labeled TRS 80s. Coco, huh? Color computer. <laughs> the the it was a vast difference between the Cocos and the TRS. Sorry, the the proper TRS 80s. The Cocos uh, did not sorry did not have a separate keyboard. The Trash 80s did. Um, so for the Cocos, the keyboard was built right into the console, same as on Commodore 64s and 128s and on Apple IIs, uh, except for the GS. Um, these, the TRS-80 was based off the Zilog Z80, thus the 80 in the name, but the uh, Cocos ran on the uh, Motorola 6800. Right, I, just, I was which, just wicking that. Which is a much more powerful CPU, especially when the Coco 3 came out with the Motorola 6809 in it. That thing was actually 16-bit. Again, 16-bit internal, but only 8-bit external. Right. So we're still in the 80s, aren't we? Well, when he brought up the trash 80s, he moved us back to 1977. (laughs) Because they were out of production by 81. uh, And the TRS-80 actually had the first portable, a truly portable computer. They had a little LED screen on it. Uh, It was, if I remember correctly, about... 12 inches wide by about 8 inches tall with a keyboard and everything. And uh, that actually reminds me that when you're talking about IBM clones, uh, Compaq was originally called Compaq because Compaq was compact. It was like a giant... Uh, the lunchboxes. Yeah, the giant manila suitcase with a keyboard as the top that pops off. Yep, I had one of them. I've used one of them as myself. Ugh. The beautiful thing about that one was I managed to get it on a high-speed internet, went into the chat rooms, and people were like, no, you're not really doing that from such an old machine. <laughs> you don't have that on high-speed. <laughs> oh, so like, these are it's apparently people who didn't know Jack, because I mean, I was one of my big things was I uh, did a little rewiring and uh, used a microkernel to put my Commodore 64 on the internet. Uh, yeah, that's cool. I think, the, I think, well, internet, but on high-speed? Well, it, just, it was still going through the serial port. So, I mean, yeah, basically, so you're, limited, you're basically limited to dial-up speeds. Exactly. But I got an Ethernet card for my my Apple II GS and put it on broadband. Wow, you could do that? It's got an Ethernet port. You can put it on broadband. Wow. Yeah. You have to hack up a kernel for it, but you know, because it certainly won't do it with the standard OS. Well, yeah, that's that's the one thing I remember about Compact was Compact actually meant Compact. It's, uh, yeah, that, that thing was... The suitcase is what I call it. It's uh... yeah. it, they refer to it as a portable computer. I think most people refer to them as luggables. <laughs> you know, I personally thought it'd be a lot better if they put casters on it. <laughs> it was huge. First, actually, I picked it up because I needed a sewing machine, and I thought that's what I was picking up. <laughs> I got it home and I opened it up. And I was like, "Oh, this isn't a sewing machine. It's a computer." <laughs> and I had a, a, a four or five inch screen. Uh, to this day, I still get the shivers whenever I see. Uh, uh, amber on black. <laughs> it was an awful little machine, but uh, 
but it worked. It worked, and you could you could move it with you with a with a medium amount of fuss. <laughs> like, and that's and that's the thing. That's that's why those things sold was because at the time that was your laptop. I wouldn't actually use it on my lap though; it'd break my knees. <laughs> but. That that's what that's what was available for mobile computing technology, and it hadn't been that long since a computer was the size of a refrigerator. Wow! Like I mean, you look at the PDP eleven. We talk about it nowadays, I mean, and but at the time that was again quantum leaps for them to even something the size of a suitcase or the large lunchbox to carry that around and have that portable. That is something that people would have never thought of ten years ago, or ten years before. Yeah. I remember watching Apollo 13 and hearing Tom Hanks saying, yeah, we've got this uh, plan to build a computer that will fit in one room. <laughs> now, that was that was late 60s, like 68, 69. And I'm not sure that the quote was quite relevant because I think that the DEC PDP-7 had already come out. It was the commer- first commercially viable computer, the PDP-7. And it was about the size of a bar fridge. Wow! Apparently, IBM cloned the cloned the compact back and had the IBM Portable PC fifty one fifty five. It wasn't quite as good. Commodore also took a swing at that sort of design. It's it why, would, why would you do this on purpose? That's the thing. I'm looking at this thing, and, and they both look exactly the same. They both look absolutely hideous. Because at the time, that's what was available. That was that was the height of technology at the time. Right. There was no small motherboards. You know, I mean, you had to use the full-size motherboard. You had, I mean, if you've ever seen the old MFM or RLL drives, I mean, these were huge suckers. These were five and a quarter wide. Uh, Probably about three inches four tall. Inches wide, or four inches tall. I mean, these were... And they were as slow as you can get out. Proprietary cards. They were monsters. Yep. And they held 20 megabytes of data. If that. And at the time, people were looking at it going, oh, I'll never fill that up. <laughs> oh, believe me. I, back when 20 meg were the standards, uh, I sprung for a 200 meg hard drive. And everyone's going, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> it. L- lucky to f- Lucky to fit the... Uh... Lucky to fit uh, one game on that. Lucky to fit uh, one browser on that. Yes, Nowadays, I, mean, I can't even install an operating system in that space. Not There's even not, like a... No modern operating system that I can install in 20 megs. I tried paring down uh, Slackware 3.3, and that's a 10-year-old operating system. <laughs> tried paring it down to fit in 20 megs. No, smallest I could get it was 35. Wow. No graphical user interface. Uh, nothing but the basic system tools necessary to start the OS and get it on the network. Because I figured if I can get it on the network, then I can have some other computers serve everything. Didn't help. Couldn't do it. Yep. Okay, so what else was going on in those wild and wacky 80s? A wild and wacky 80s, that's one way of putting well, it. Well, yeah, I'm trying to think, I mean, because we've covered the main ones. I mean, we talked a little bit about the Altair and the homebrew systems. Uh, we've talked about the early Apples up to the Mac. We've talked about uh, Atari. Um, I do have to interject. The, the first computer I used was a video game system called the Bally Arcade System, which also which was sold and later became known as the Astrocade System. Uh, it used the Z80 chip as well, and uh, it was a game system had four built-in games. But one of the chips, one of the cartridges you could buy, and these were uh, tape deck cartridge size. Uh, was one called Bally Basic, where it had a jack you could plug into a tape recorder to write your own little programs. You could save them and reload them. 
Uh, it operated in 1.4K of RAM. I've never but, heard of this system before. Oh, you... there's a huge following for the Bally's. The Bally's were a unique system. Have, have you, Tim? I've not heard of it. I just wikied it right now. Yeah, um, yeah. apparently its uh, graphics capabilities were head and shoulders above what anybody else had at the time. Hmm. And, looking at, and looking at the time, I believe that, because I think this thing predates the, uh, the Atari 2600. No, it's it after the Atari. Hmm? It was after right. Stella. But okay. It, but it had one major... It, it actually had several advantages. One was it came with four built-in games. It had one yeah, called Gunfight. Yeah, came with nothing. Yep. Uh, one was called Gunfight, where it was based off of the arcade game Gunfight, where you had two people, uh, you controlled a guy who could go up and down, and the controllers were unique because they were gunstock controllers that you held like a gunstock with a joystick on top that also contained the knob, a potentiometer. This sounds oh, really and- weird. Oh, it was great. Uh, yeah, but, actually, that that sounds like a really cool controller. I, mean, I wish Atari had come up with something even halfway that good. Well, well to rewire the controllers, they actually worked on it. They were almost the exact same pinouts as Atari's. They also used the nine-pin jacks. But, yeah, if you're interested in more about it, uh, BallyAlley.com. There's actually uh, – I'm, I'm a subscriber on the BallyAlley mailing list, and these are people who are going through and talking to the original creators as well and getting information about this and about the hardware and – it's phenomenal stuff. So let, let's uh, with the with the with the '80s, uh, we have to talk about uh, you know Jobs is uh, being boot boot from Apple, and I'm just going to say it that as an outside observer, someone who was too young at the time to realize what was going on, but after looking at it in hindsight, I have to say that Apple wouldn't exist today if they didn't do that. No, absolutely right. Even Jobs himself admits he was not the right person at the job. Uh, he was. He would have not made a good CEO then. Um, however, the people who took over were just as bad, if not worse. And, yeah, I mean, they that were, was uh, that was about the time when they started allowing people to make clones of the Mac. That didn't last long. Yeah, it wasn't and they clones of the Apple II as well. Wow. Yeah, but a lot of the clones of the Apple II were not made with Apple's permission or support. Yeah, and, and a lot the of them were overseas. I never saw an Apple clone over here that didn't come from overseas. Wow. Yeah. But yeah, it's a it one thing I always said is if they because I always read fluff peeps from uh, like ZDNet or or other blogs where they say, "Oh, you know, if 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 Jobs wasn't fired from Apple, we would have gotten the iPod revolution 10 years early." I'm like, "No, if Jobs wasn't fired from Apple, Apple would have been sold off to pieces to Compaq and Dell." Yeah, not to mention the iPad the iPod revolution that they're speaking of wouldn't have come about until the introduction of uh, the really good arms and like the later generation arms anyway. Well, Apple I, did not invent any of the technology that went into the iPod. They just said, Hey, watch this. <laughs> I, but I will say, I mean, I'm one of the people who was a fan of the Newton. Oh yeah. Me too. And I went from there to the Palm pilot. Yeah. Well, I didn't, I, I went from, um, I went to the, uh, handspring visor. Which I had was, one of I them think, too, which uh, that's just a Palm pilot though, made by handspring. Exactly. I mean, the people the people who founded Palm basically got booted, went over, made their own company, which used Palm OS. And uh, I mean, the Visor phone was actually the first smartphone. But uh, we're we're skipping over a whole decade here. Let's yeah. let's let's first yeah, talk let's about back here. 1991 in Helsinki. I think uh, Tim knows where I'm going here. Oh yes. Oh yes. A, a new OS was born. Not really new. He just. 
you got to remember, it's a two-part story, the creation of the GNU Linux system. Part of it's Richard Stallman because, yeah, Unix had been around forever. Yeah. But it wasn't really on the micro platform. It was, it was on Big Iron. And there were some attempts by some companies to produce uh, uh, micro, uh, microprocessor-based Unixes, including IBM. I believe they came up with one. I know Apple did. Uh, uh, I don't know about a micro one. I do know that um, uh, they did have it for their mainframes. Uh, a lot of them were using it. And, man, they were using it back in the 70s, and it was slow, clunky, Oh God! AT and T had a version that was run on the IBM home systems. AT and T actually created Unix. Yeah. yeah, and it was—I mean, good lord, forty floppies, forty-five and a quarter floppies. If your system went down, you spent the next couple of days loading it up manually. Yeah, it was a dreadful, dreadful thing. But it was also a standard. Like, yeah. It was—it was a standardized operating system. There were fifteen different versions of it out there, made by various people. But they all work the same, and you could take the software from one machine and recompile it on another, and it would just work. I mean, Unix was responsible for the C compiler. Uh, it was responsible for the entire idea of desktop publishing. I mean, that's actually one of the two jobs Unix was written for, was desktop publishing. And it's 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 an extremely influential system, but it wasn't really around on microcomputers. And Richard Stallman said, well... Why the hell not? So he started porting it. It was the kernel that was killing him, though. And they, they, they were working on a kernel they called HERD, which was a doubly recursive acronym and a really stupid name, but <laughs> they couldn't get it to work. They were fighting with their kernel, and then, yeah, up in Helsinki, Linus Torvalds pops up and says, I've got the, um, I want to build a kernel for a Unix-type system, but I don't have the rest of the Unix. So he, he emailed... Uh, Richard Stallman and said, can we use the GNU tools that you're building with the Linux kernel just so we can get this up and running? And he said, sure, why not? My kernel isn't working. Richard Stallman is very bitter about that decision today. (laughs) Well, we actually, uh, if we can, let's jump back to the 80s for a second, because you talked about the C programming language, and we skipped over what was a, a, a system far beyond what anything else at the time. And it was actually the first home system to use the C language. And that was, system is that? That was the Commodore Amiga. Okay, yeah, the Commodore Amiga. That, that, that I thought we skipped over more because it was part of the 16-bit era, and everybody sort of skipped over the 16-bit era. <laughs> but the Commodore Amiga was uh, far beyond the capabilities of anything at the time, and that includes the Apple stuff, that includes anything from IBM. Uh, it was the first, quote, home system to have, you know, Great stereo, great video capabilities. Uh, I mean, the, the a Genlock, the video Genlock was made for the Amiga. Uh, for those who remember the old TV show Max Headroom. Oh, yeah. All the graphics done on that, all the computerized graphics were done on the Amiga, and they actually had to dirty it up a little bit because the Amiga's graphics were so clean. Uh, yep. The, it, the Amiga was a fantastic system, and, and you will find Amiga users today. Uh, Eric Schwartz, for example, who still swear by the stupid things. Hey, even like these people run out and buy PowerPC motherboards just so they can run Amiga OS on it. Yeah, it was it was made on the uh, sixty eight hundred, like the uh, Macintoshes were sixty eight thousand. But yes, sixty eight thousand. Sorry, I missed a zero. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, I mean, it's the people who used Amigas swear by them, and there's so much that, as revolutionary as the Mac was, 
the Amiga was more so, and a lot of people may not recognize the name, but they will recognize a lot of the things that were done because of the Amiga. Yeah, the Amiga largely influenced uh, the IBM PC world, the development of Windows. A lot of the improvements that went into the Macintosh, um, like the sound capabilities by itself, created the entire market for sound cards. Exactly. Uh, back when the Amiga first came out, uh, I was working at a different store than the Apple store, well, the store that sold apples at the time, and we had one just set up on display in the middle of the store, hooked into the store's sound system, and had it playing an old game, uh, new at that time, called Archon. Yeah, and I remember we, Archon. I'm sorry? I remember Archon, yeah. yeah. Fun game, but when we booted up with the full stereo system going on, I mean, people were walking in off the street to find out what was doing this. <laughs> In speaking of sound cards and just my memories as a child, it's I remember, you know, early nineteen nineties, really early nineteen nineties, just say like nineteen ninety to nineteen ninety three, there were, you know, even earlier than that I imagine, but that was nineteen ninety was around the time when my dad got the Packard Bell in the house and uh everyone remembers Packard Bell, right? <laughs> Anyways, uh I remember we you know, the sound cards around there was uh, there was the Roland that was basically had like this uh box that came with the sound card. Remember that? Yeah, you actually yeah, had two the styles of sound cards. One was music-oriented, which tied into the MIDI interfaces and were used by musicians primarily. You the used the OPL3 uh, chipset for the OPL2 or OPL3 chipset. Yep. And the other was primarily sound-oriented for the digitizing of sounds. Yeah, and you used the CM series chip. There are about six of them, but... Uh, Sound blasters at the time, like the first of the sound blasters, were strictly OPL3. I know, I'm sorry, that's right. They had 8 bit, 8 kilohertz sound available as well, but nobody cared. Or 8, or eight yeah, 8 kilohertz. But really, it was about the MIDI at the time. All the old games from that era used MIDI. And then there and were no the games that, sound. and then there were the games that started having audio where, where spoken dialogue. And oh, one thing I have to remember though is, you know, Back in 1990, you know, we had we had we had the Packard Bell, and every time we wanted to play a game, we had to like boot out of Windows, go back into DOS, re- restart the system into expanded memory versus extended memory mode. Oh Lord, don't even get me started on that because that's a whole other kettle of fish. Like if I wanted to play like a Wing Commander or a, or another game like that, I had to restart the system into into expanded memory mode. Yep. You no, know, that's just an example of where IBM screwed up. But uh, <laughs> we'll, well come back to that in a bit. I, w- I wanted to drill a bit more on sound cards, actually, because, yeah, you, you mentioned uh, having the Amiga set up back in 85. Uh, 87, uh, I believe. 87? Okay, well, yeah, the Amiga came out in 85. That's where I was getting the information. Yeah, the AdLib card came out in 87. Now, it was an OPL2-based OPL machine, rather. So it could do 10 voices of what sounded like speaker beeps. I actually, had, I actually had an ad-lib card on that old Packard Bell. Yep. They sounded dreadful, <laughs> honestly, but when you consider that all you had was single speaker beeps on the original IBM PC, slapping this thing in here about tripled your, uh, your sound capability. <laughs> but at the same time, we've got to cross over, because when we talk about audio, uh, one of the big things uh, that the Commodore 64 had was the SID chip. Yeah, which was basically a three-voice, 16-bit synthesizer instead of a 10-voice, a 10-voice, 12-bit synthesizer like the uh, OPL2. Yep. And then, in, sorry, in 87, you had the Sound Blaster, which 
also had 12, sorry, it had 12 voices. Um, it only had square wave and uh, it was, it was 8-bit synthesizer, which meant its sound quality was about on par with that of the, uh, of the VIC-20. <laughs> and then in, you know, and 85, two years before these two cards came out, the Amiga had 16-bit sampled sound, four voices of samples, like true audio capability. It's no wonder that the the people who started using Amigas back when they first came out still swear by them because they were brilliantly designed. Exactly. They had 4,096 colors when IBM PCs had six, and Tandy's had eight. Actually, I think Tandy's got up to 16 in the same era, but still, 16 versus 4,096, go home. <laughs> paint programs that were being used then, I mean, whereas you could do some phenomenal stuff on them. Uh, I mean, I remember some of the demos that we ran because uh, one of the demos we had was a waterfall where it was just cycling the colors through, which is a simple thing nowadays. But back then, it looked like the waterfall was moving because of it. Not animation, just color cycling. Yeah, I remember we were doing that on the old VGAs. I never got a chance to work on an Amiga, sadly. It's, uh, they were beautiful systems. I mean, you had the original one, which is the Amiga 1000, uh, which was a square box, basically, with a three-and-a-half built-in drive. Uh, you booted off a floppy drive like you did with a Max. Uh, then they went to the big system, which was the 2000, and at the same, which had the built-in video toaster. And at the same time, which the, was another reason to have one of these machines, by the oh, way. Yeah. I mean, we talk about desktop publishing. This was the beginning of desktop video. Yeah, and we're still talking the uh, the 80s. Yeah, and then we also had the Amiga 500, which was the smaller portable one. Looked a lot like a Commodore 128, actually. Well, actually, the other way around, because the 128... Oh, yeah, that's right. The 128 was designed after the styling of the 500, yeah. Yep. So, can we talk about the extended versus expanded memory and why I had to reboot my, my system? Well, I'll put it up simple. Extended me- The reason for extended versus expanded was because of the first memory barrier. When memory was designed for the IBM systems, they figured they would never get beyond one megabyte. So they had the first 640K, which was usable memory, and then 384K, which was basically addressing. Yeah, some of it was used for ROMs, some was used for video memory, some of it was used for uh, uh, for I.O. ports, yep. but none of it could be used for RAM. Then came extended memory, which was an add-in card. Extra memory on there. I'm oh, sorry, that was expanded memory. That was expanded memory. Extended oh, that was expanded memory? memory? Okay. Yeah, that was expanded memory. Yeah, that's right, because you, you have the XMS emulator. Basically, you bought a card for more RAM chips, and you stuffed more RAM chips in it, and you dropped it in a slot. But then you had to install a driver, and you could only see 16K of it at a time, and it had to be swapped out. And that's where that uh, 384 came in, because that's where the address came in, and it was just sharing out of that memory. Once they broke the one meg barrier, everything over one meg was the extended memory, and they could use that through the XMS systems. Except that because so much software had already been written for the old expanded memory, yep. it was then useless unless you installed an expand, expanded memory emulator. EMS 386. And that's why I had to reboot into DOS to... Uh... Exactly. Yeah, because if you're running Windows 95 or later, it doesn't know about expanded memory at all. It can't use it. It can't touch it. Why? Because it's a stupid thing to have in your computer. <laughs> Well, even Windows 3.1, 3.1 really didn't use expanded memory. It used extended memory directly because yes. it was written to use that. Yeah, it was a 16-bit clean operating system. Yes. 
And yes, that, that that's the thing. I remember in Windows 3.1, I had to exit out of Windows, go back in the DOS and type a command to restart. And to, I, I forgot what the command was, but it was a weird command. And I memorized it because I wanted to play Wing Commander, damn it. Load high space uh, EM, uh, EMS 386. And don't ask me for all the switches after that. Actually, my dad set up like some sort of a weird batch command for me to do it just in like like... That's what my dad did. He just like says, "Here, Ben, this is what you need to type in," and it was like something a lot more simpler than that. <laughs> yeah, but and back, back to uh, Linux. Yeah, Linux, of course, ran in the protected mode. Yeah, uh, the both Richard Stallman and Linus Torvalds made the decision right off the hop that they were not going to do anything with eight or sixteen-bit computers because they were dead by that time. Thirty-two-bit had been thoroughly established. Sixty-four-bit was looming on the horizon. So they went straight to 32-bit. Um, other people disagreed with them. Minix is available for 16-bit computers. <laughs> but that's a whole different operating system that nobody uses. <laughs> and who knew that Linux was obsolete by 1992, if you ask Andrew as Tannenbaum? <laughs> well, you know what? Unix has been obsolete since practically the day it was introduced. I forget who it was that said it, but he said Linux is, sorry, Unix is creaking and clanking along like a zombie because there's simply nothing better to replace it. It's not that it's about, good, it's just that there's nothing better. Yeah. The big thing about Unix, from my experience, was it was a networking system to where people hook up dumb terminals. And at the time, Novell had that all wrapped up. Especially in the, uh, the smaller commercial arena. Uh, you, you didn't run... If, if you had a small office with 12 machines, you did not get Unix for it, because at the time, Unix cost several thousand dollars. And Novell and, cost a few hundred. Exactly. It was far more economical to go with Novell or with Bang & Vines, you know, if you were one of those three or four people. <laughs> hey, at least it wasn't double DOS. Uh, but uh, so but, Novell networking became almost the, the default standard for networking, despite the fact that TCP IP, which is the default now, was already in existence at the time. It was cheaper. It was faster. But unfortunately, it had to be running Unix, which was neither cheaper nor faster. Yeah, it wasn't until, uh, I'm trying to remember when they introduced TCP IP. That was in, God, was that in Novell 5? They had stuff for it in 3. Yeah, but you were still but expecting to still, use IPX, SPX. IPX, SPX, and at least it wasn't monolithic IPX anymore. But I mean, let's go ahead and give a little bit of a background. At the time, TCP IP is basically the language of the network that we use nowadays. But back then, uh, there were several different ones. Uh, there was IPX-SPX, which was the Novell language, the Novell network protocol. Uh, got NetBuoy, which was Microsoft's. And a classic example of why Microsoft should not be allowed to uh, write networking systems. If you want another one, look at uh, SMB. Yep. Dreadful. Dreadful. <laughs> But yeah, this is getting into the era where where I was using computers, but I was still a child, and I was still, you know, it's what I remember is, you know, I was actually building my own systems when I was when I was not even a teen, teenager yet. You know, every time my dad bought something new to put into the Packard Bell, he put it in there, and I I think by the end of it, the only thing left original of that thing was the case. Yeah. Yeah. How old are you, Ben? I'm twenty nine. Twenty nine. So yeah. Um. When I started building new systems or like building systems from scratch, it was the Apple II days. So I've got, but then I'm just I'm the old guy here. I don't know about that. 
Neil, this is starting to get into the era where you were around. Were you messing with computers then, Neil? Not really. Uh, Neil, are you kind of bored with this? No, I'm I'm listening. I'm fascinated. I just don't have anything to contribute. Okay. Just want to make sure because this is really interesting to me. Okay. Uh so yeah, I remember I remember messing around with that old Packard Bell. It was uh it you know, I remember what was it? It was like a what was the I remember because I remember motherboards had different size parameters and and uh, this is around the time my dad was trying to teach me to be a computer guy and some of the lessons worked, some of them didn't. He gave me this book about the history of personal computers and uh and you know about it taught me about the uh, you know the eras you know the the eighty six era the three eighty six era the four eighty six era. Well, that's that's because you talk about that, and that's actually one of the things when we talk about IBM systems and Intel systems nowadays, everything is descended from the old eighty eighty six eighty eighty eight chips. To the that's point where like, any Intel hardware, uh, if you any PCI Intel hardware shows up on the PCI list with a device uh, manufacturer ID of eighty eighty six. I mean, from the 8088s, well, 8086s to the 8088s, uh, that's why we went to the 80286, 80386, 80486, and then the Pentiums, which were really the 80586. Except that Intel was getting sick of that naming scheme. Yeah, they wanted something a little more marketable. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, remember, Pentium. I remember we didn't get a Pentium when the Pentium came out. We still had a 486, but it was like a 486. Plus, do you remember when they were making 486 plus processors? <laughs> well, during the start of the Pentium era, there was a lot of attempts to bring 486s up into the what they were referring to as the modern world. Um, so you had chips that were basically Pentiums, but scaled down to a 486s pen array, uh, the, the, the 486 turbos, and uh, yeah, the 486 plus. So you had uh, yeah, I mean, also like crippled Pentiums. Yeah, they were. <laughs> And, because the I mean the Pentium is a 32-bit chip externally, but once once again, and this is the story with an awful lot of CPUs internally, it was a whole different whole different animal. It was an, it was a 64-bit RISC chip. It was it was actually a point where Intel pulled off something really crazy good, and I think they were doing it to try and finally put down a- NEC and AMD, who had been building clones of their chips for ever. And well, so, that, that was partly that was partly that was partly Intel's fault because Intel did let AMD be one of their manufacturers for one run of chips. Yeah, and AMD assumed that meant for all of their chips. That's true. And uh, so when when Intel came out with the Pentium, they vastly changed the internal microarchitecture, um, so that basically basically what the Pentium was was it was a uh, complex instruction set interface or to a reduced instruction set chip. So it, it took the complex instruction set and broke it down into three or four RISC uh, commands and then passed that on to the RISC processor and said, here, hold this. And it worked. worked great. I mean, the performance difference between an early Pentium and the latest of 486s has to be seen to be believed. It's yeah. a substantial improvement in, in performance. It's basically akin to a Pentium nowadays uh, matched up against a Core 2 Duo or an i3. I wouldn't go that extreme. I wouldn't say it's that extreme. I'd say it matched up. Sorry, matching it up against, uh, say, a Pentium Four would be fair. And uh, one thing I do remember also after that was, uh, was we did get a Pentium Two. We actually bought a refurbished Dell from the Dell Center in uh, Austin. My dad and I took a trip. We drove all the way down to Austin and picked up a refurbished Dell from the Dell Center there. It's uh, anyone who lives in Texas will tell you that there is uh, a very nice. Uh, there used to be at least a very nice Dell uh, store in. 
Austin, Texas. That well, uh, Dell was based out of Waco. That's true. Before yeah. they screwed the pooch and uh, started outsourcing overseas their IT support. Yeah, don't call Dell support anymore, guys. But well, actually, there's a trick around that. I'll, I'll let you know. It's uh, if you want to get if you want to get someone from the United States on Dell support, you hit this. You hit the it for Spanish option. And because they're all in the United States and they all and all everyone they hire for the call center has to be bilingual. <laughs> so you can get an English speaking uh, support rep from America by hitting the Spanish option on Dell support. Yeah, until they start outsourcing to the Philippines or some other third world country where Spanish is occasionally spoken. That's not happening yet, but uh... yet it's because nobody's told them about this yet. Oh, you're oh, putting Tim, this out what, on the net, aren't done, you? Oops. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go back, because we're, t- we're in the 90s now. We're talking 1632-64, um, and we have talked about Unix, but we can't. We should also talk about one of the other variations of Unix that became something that's very popular today, and that was the Berkeley system, or BSD. Yep. BSD. I made the mistake of buying a uh, copy of BSD. That sent me back $2,000. <laughs> Because Whoa. they told me they would pay me four thousand if I could crash it. Did you crash it? No, I failed. That sucker was bulletproof. Yep, and it became the fundamental system for a uh, OS, which became the next OS. Yep, owned and by, created by Steve Jobs. Yep, and uh, actually the first World Wide Web server ever ran on an Xbox. Yep, and the next so. was—I mean, it was. The combination of hardware and software, which Jobs always loved. But the problem was, with, with the Next at least, was they had really weird partnerships with, with hardware companies. It got to the point where they weren't pay, paying their bills to hardware companies. I remember reading reading this, and it was it was really weird. It was like he was robbing Paul to pay Peter all the time with Next. Hey, that was Jobs. And but, he had uh, this he had this weird idea of marketing into education, but the price markup was so high on next systems it was Well the next box was not a particularly well designed piece of hardware either. But it was but, beautiful. Oh it was quite pretty. Um I mean I prefer personally prefer the look of the B box, but who the hell has ever even seen a B box in the flesh? <laughs> but that's also a Unix system running on a power PC architecture, so there you go. But that's I mean a, the reason why we mention uh, the next system is because of what happened to it. Yep. It, it got absorbed and became parts of the next. Uh, it the got next bought out by a company which was known as Apple Computers. That's what brought Steve Jobs back into the fold. And the next OS is what became OS X. The next boxes basically became the new Macintoshes. That's that's true, but we're skipping over. We're skipping over one era. Is the uh, I was about to bring up, like I said. We bought a Pentium 2 instead of a Pentium, you know, when Pentium 2s were out. And the one thing that surprised me about the Pentium 2 was it was uh, it looked like a video game cartridge. Yeah, a lot of the Pentium 2s uh, shipped, uh, shipped that way. They, they had a slot that took the a CPU riser card. The, the CPU was usually, usually arrived already installed on the riser card with the heat sink. They figured that with the number of people that were building their own boxes at home, this was probably a safer way of going. Yeah. In fact, it was much worse because you had to really lean on that damn cartridge to get it in place. Yeah. And uh, well, actually, more bent pins than you could believe. And actually, that, that Pentium 2 uh, Dell PC I had ran until 2008. It was, well, actually, all I did was I left Windows 95 on it and plugged in a, plugged in a, uh, 
a card that had a that had a radio FM radio receiver on there, just used it as a radio in my room. It's a slightly overpowered radio, but <laughs> well, it's an impractical solution for for a non-existent problem. That the hardware guys love that. <laughs> well, it depends on your hardware guy. <laughs> I imagine Boz would have slapped you. And then redesigned it. Probably. It's time for intermission, boys and girls. Do you like retro shows? Did you grow up in either the 80s or the 90s? Then tune into Telecast, geekcastradio.com's newest podcast. Join us here on the Telecast as we revisit some of your favorite shows, such as Clarissa Explains It All, Salute Your Shorts, Saved by the Bell, and much, much more. Only on geekcastradio.com. Grab your helmets because it's time to assemble Mask. The GeekCast Radio Network has launched Mask to Mayhem with your hosts, Optimus Solo and TFU and Mike. This podcast covering all 75 episodes of Mask will feature in-depth analysis of every episode, talk on the toys, and more. Mask Mayhem will run 30 podcast episodes. You can find us in iTunes and on www.geekcastradio.com. Get your spectrums ready as podcasting is the ultimate weapon. Yeah, the Pentium 2s were a uh, were a well-designed system overall, except for that card slot thing. And that didn't last, because when I got a Pentium 2, it didn't have the card slot. I put, I, it had a zero insertion force socket right on the, right on the motherboard. And then the, then the Pentium 3 came out, and it was probably the finest chip that Intel designed for quite some time. Actually, after the Pentium 2 is when we jumped ship, because we were reading that the that the AMDs were, the Thunderbird, the AMD Thunderbird had some pretty good performance, and we decided to jump there, and then I burned through uh, three CPUs in a year. Yep, that's always been a problem with uh, AMD, is their chips just don't last. Uh, you can see a wonderful video on Tarm's Hardware, where they take the CPU coolers and fans off of four CPUs, uh, they do it to a Pentium 3, a Pentium 4, an AMD Turon and an AMD Athlon. They just pull the heatsink right off. All the machines running. You can see on the video, like on, uh, you can see the monitor behind playing uh, Quake Three as they're doing this. You know, so they're making sure the CPU is nice and loaded up. Uh, the Pentium Three crashed, but they restarted it and, it and it started right up again. Pentium Four just slowed down. They put the CPU heatsink back on and it sped right back up again. The AMD chips, they let the magic blue smoke out. Oh God, yeah, I remember the magic blue smoke. I, it, it, it was it was just kind of because there was a PC place, uh, PC parts place near where I live, a uh, really nice place. Uh, got, you know, the guy there knows us by name, and I, I showed up and said, "Yeah, I burnt through another Thunderbird. Can you give me another one, please?" And he's like, "He's like, yeah, the the, the Thunderbirds had a heat, heat heating problem. Didn't you know about that?" I'm like, "No, I have a big heat sink on it too." And he's like, "Yeah, you get that." So after that, that we we went we jumped to Pentium Four, and Pentium Four had the performance I wanted and the speed I liked. And strange thing about the Pentium Four though is that clock for clock, it was less powerful than the Pentium Three. It's just that it had a lot more clock cycles to play with. Pentium Four yeah. was available up to three point two gigahertz, whereas Pentium Three topped out at around five hundred. I had my first multi-core system, however, with Pentium Threes. I had dual Pentium Threes. Two wow. CPUs, two physical CPUs, and I've I've never been able to break myself of the habit since my current machine has paired Xeons. Wow, extension card or no? It's built right in the motherboard. I've got an HP XW eighty two hundred. Ooh, nice. yeah, because most of the multis that I've used were uh, uh, the uh, servers based, so they were all just the flat uh, 
PCI cards, and then you'd insert the cards in there with the processors on them. Yeah, I've seen a few like that. Actually, Cell Broadband Engine was available in that sort of design. Never got my hands on one of them, damn it. Yeah, well, they're expensive. I know. That's why I didn't get yep. my hands on them. <laughs> yeah, it's that, a... that, that chip excited me. I thought when that came out, okay, Apple's going to look really stupid for having switched to Intel now because this thing slaps anything Intel has out right now. And then, of course, Intel came out with the uh, Core 2 Dual, which yep. uh, which was a little bit more powerful than the Cell Broadband Engine, despite the fact that the Cell's a 9-core chip. Well, let's well, remember, too, I mean, to branch off to that, the reason the Cells weren't really available to Apple was because Microsoft bought them all up for those freaking Xboxes. Cell never went into an Xbox. Uh, the first commercial use of the Cell Broadband Engine was in the PlayStation 3. Okay, uh, sorry, it was PlayStation I knew that was one of them where they bought all of them up. <laughs> and the the PlayStation 3 used to be a really lovely uh, Linux machine until uh, Sony took that away. Yeah, well, the less said about Sony, the better. Because oh. at first it was like we embrace the Linux community. You can load any other, you can load other OS on there. We we don't care. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, and we're, and it's gone. Well, one of the ten fastest uh, supercomputers in the world was over at MIT, and it was nothing more than a ton of uh, PlayStation 3s. Yep, hooked up in a Beowulf array. Yep. I believe they're currently suing Sony, aren't they? Because all of a sudden they lost that computer. Yeah. Yeah. And I know the U.S. Air Force had a similar Beowulf cluster made up of PlayStation 3s. They're currently suing Sony. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, it definitely they definitely deserved it because I bought my Sony PlayStation 3 because of the Linux capability. It was advertised for it. Me too. And that's breach of contract. Yes, it is. However, unless you personally own a, uh, a megaton range nuclear weapon, there's not much you can do about Sony. <laughs> and if I had one, I'd be really hard-pressed. I mean, I'd be ignoring Sony. I'd be going Cupertino or Redmond. Cupertino or Redmond. <laughs> uh, Tim is not an Apple, current Apple fan, Tom. <laughs> I Well, I mean, I love my Apple. I'm my I'm, we're talking right now on my MacBook Pro, uh, five years old, and it still holds up to a lot of the current systems. You know, Core 2 Duo 2.4. Yeah, my machine, my laptop, that is, is not. it's not the dual Xeon machine. That thing weighs a freaking ton. I wouldn't want to <laughs> lug it around. My laptop is uh, Core i3. Yep. And uh, I, I'm sorry, but they slap the Core 2 quite handily. They, oh, yeah. The yeah. power level difference is just remarkable. But, I mean, a, a MacBook Pro running a Core 2 Duo yeah. will do 90% of what the average person needs. I saw a spoof of the Mac versus PC commercial. You know the one with the two guys? I'm a Mac, I'm a PC. Yep. Yeah. And the caption really said, and since all you do is look at lolcats and check out Facebook, we're functionally the same. <laughs> well, I mean, I will say a lot of the heavy-duty stuff I do, I do on my Mac. And, yep. uh what I don't do on my Mac, I do on my <clears throat> Hackintosh. Yeah. Whereas all my machines run Linux, and when I'm doing heavy-duty stuff, I'm talking video rendering. Um, it actually gets stuck on my laptop because yeah, uh, <laughs> it's got the more powerful core. Well, I mean, I run all. I have to run all the OSs. I mean, I run Windows because I have to. Hey, seven's not bad. It's not at all good. Hey, seven's plenty good. Seven has. Lots of great UI changes, lots of stability. Oh, I mean, I absolutely loved Seven when it was Mac 10.2. That's not fair. I mean, I, I, I mean, I have to, I have to say something. It's, you know, 
I think it's a broken user interface if you're in a file if you're in a file explorer and you hit enter and you don't open the file. You're renaming the file. <laughs> That's a minor quibble. Minor? But I, I, I do keyboard commands all the Apple time. Apple had at uh, SSD, SSDC. Yeah, uh, when Apple had banners up for Tiger, one of the ones that I loved it said Redmond, start your photocopiers. <laughs> I used to have a T-shirt that said Windows ninety five equals Macintosh eighty four. That's actually pretty close to the truth, yeah. I think it's very dangerous to underestimate Microsoft. I know Tom, you you call you call the uh, you call Balmer Monkey Man, but uh... no, Monkey Boy. <laughs> okay, Monkey Boy. Well, but... You know what? Balmer is an ape. Okay, <laughs> I mean he's a freaking idiot. Hey, I love that Windows actually, One commercial. Think of he a did. negative adjective, and it applies to Steve Ballmer. Hey, I love that Windows One commercial he does. He's so happy and excited in that. You remember the one? It has a clock. It has. Come on. Yeah, I remember that one. You know what, though? I mean, it's, it's, what's amusing about Windows One was that they Microsoft deliberately ignored the idea of window over window. They made it a completely tiling window manager. Because they did not want to get sued by Apple. Is this is this, is this developers, developers, developers? You sent? That's the well. No, this is the other original one. This is a different one. This is the Monkey Boy. <laughs> okay. Oh, is this the one of him bouncing around the uh, stage like an idiot? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that one. Yeah, I mean, I've always said. I mean, to me, the big difference between Apple and Microsoft. Forget the fact that Microsoft. The only thing they've ever innovated was Microsoft Bob, but even that was stolen from little computer people. You've got Steve Jobs who came out calm, cool, collected. I mean, the persona of cool. And on the other hand, you've got Microsoft that has Balmer bouncing around like an idiot, has to have celebrities up the yin-yang saying, oh, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Oh, and what I really love is all the Windows 7 commercials that came out when they introduced that, pointing out all the brand new features in Windows 7. And I was sitting there going, yeah, Linux has had that since 95. Linux has had that since 97. Yep. Keep crying, guys. I mean, I showed somebody uh, a copy of uh, of KDE up and running, and they said, my God, now I know where Microsoft stole their interface. <laughs> yep. So, KDE so, and Windows 7 look practically identical. So, Tom, except you... that KDE is still better. So, so, Tom, you you ever use Linux? Yeah. My okay. servers run Red Hat. I've used Ubuntu. I've used uh, several. I mean, hell, I was using Slackware when you bought them on floppy disk. Well, bought them at uh, swap meets on floppy disks, and you paid for the floppy themselves. So what's the uh, – so Ubuntu, is that the one you, you didn't quite like, Tim, the one that you said they too simplified Linux? It is, but I have been using it because I cannot – like. The biggest problem with the Linux world, and it is a substantial one, okay? It's nothing to do with the operating system itself. It's the fact that there's no centralization. So that's the thing. You've got your Slackware and your Red Hat and your Debian, and that's just three major flavors out there. And they're not at all compatible. Um, Slackware does not have an archive of software. Red Hat's is questionable at best. Debian's is full of bugs. So, I mean, it's just – it's just such a chaotic, hectic thing that I said somebody has to standardize this mess. This is what needs to happen for Unix to take over once again. You know, to put them back in the limelight, they need to standardize. So I've been promoting Unix uh, – sorry, Ubuntu, rather, because it's the standardized Unix. I mean, and it's still available in six flavors. You pick the one you like, but it all connects to the same set of repositories, and the repositories are mostly clean, and it just works. 
Well, and that's the same reason I use Red Hat. I mean, I've been using Red Hat uh, forever. Yeah, but Red Hat um, is really more oriented towards the business the, the business consumers. Not- and that's a lot of what I use. I mean, to me, I use it as I don't use it for desktop stuff. I use it for server stuff. And it well, is it's fantastic. The only thing better is Slackware, except that Slackware is a nightmare to maintain. Exactly. And the RPM system, which we use with Red Hat, I love it. Between RPMs and Yum, uh, for, for the listeners who don't know what we're talking about, RPM is the Red Hat package management system where it's the installation bits for drivers and programs, stuff like that. And Yum is an automatic update system. I have trouble taking any software named Yum seriously. <laughs> well, you know, talking about Linux and things based off Linux, so, you know, we let's talk about mobile OSs and Android, which is using the Linux kernel. Yes. Yeah. And, and I'd just like to point out for the record that uh, Steve Wozniak says he prefers Android over iPhone. But he also says that he uses his iPhone. Uh, the majority of the work he does is on the iPhone. Well, he says the iPhone is prettier. Yeah. He also, but what I love about that quote is the part where he says that Siri is broken. Yeah. Well, Siri is, I mean, is run on servers. I mean, you aren't running it on your system. You basically, your system using Siri is recording your stuff, sending it off a lot like Shazam. Yeah. And the one thing I have to say, though, is, you know, Apple should be extremely scared because because Google and Android has a huge history of, of just of a vocal command history and the the new voice command system that they have codenamed Magell is coming out and we don't know what it's going to be like, but. Oh, sorry. Did you say it's codenamed Magell? Yes. Freaking sweet. (laughs) M-A-J-E-L? Yes. Yes. You sure that's pronounced Magell? That's how we. Uh, that's how Majel Barrett spells her name. Yeah, it's it's. I but pronounced it wrong. That's the point. That, I, I yeah. pronounced it wrong. Yes, it, that's the. That's why it's called that. Oh, then that's beautiful. Yes, that's I, what I, I just. Majel said. would love that. So yeah, that so that's Google's code name for their new voice actions for for Android. So are they going to get Shatner to advertise it? Worked well for Commodore. No, but I think they just have to loop this back to the beginning of the of the, of the uh, episode. But you know, they have there's so much archive, you know, v- recording of of her voice. They could because have she's been in every episode of Star Trek ever filmed. They could much. they could conceivably come up with voice commands where it's her talking back to you. Especially if you get the phone's attention instead of by hitting a button you just say computer. <laughs> So I'm, I'm, guessing, I'm guessing I, I got both of you on board for that. Oh, yeah. There's well, a lot about Android I, I like. I just happen to prefer my iPhone. I, I mean it. I, I prefer Android. I mean, largely the choice of OS is anymore becoming a matter of personal taste because they, they all do the same thing now. Really, honestly, they do. The question is only how does it look? Their Linux has an advantage because it's so easy to change how it looks. You just download a different theme package. Actually, you can change it even more extensively than that. You can change the way it works by downloading a different window manager package. But, I mean, that's it. That's, and it's largely cosmetic. The well, terms of the OSs have largely become the same to the point it, where even Linux Torvalds says. I mean, I think that one of the things that Apple had a problem with, and I wish they would have done it, was uh, changing the disk format system because there were rumors and it was they had it done internally to where they were going from uh, HFS to ZFS, which was a much more functional system. They're still clunking along on NTFS over with Microsoft. Which is a dreadful dinosaur 
It's been around since the 80s, and it hasn't gotten any better. And, you know, there's there's been other attempts to make new OSs that are failures. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Google fan, and I, I love lots of what Google does with the technology-wise, but uh, Chrome OS was a misstep because oh. they, they, they put – they made it way too expensive to go in. Anything that uses cloud computing exclusively is a bad idea. Well, the whole idea of a, of a disposable, portable laptop that lets you get to everything you need to, as long as you have an air connection, is not a flawed idea. The problem is it's $400 a machine. Yeah, if they could, go, could have gotten it down to around $100 a machine, it might have taken off. Because you're talking about something that you, you have to love the commercial. Well, take a look at the uh, uh, Asus EEE system, the EEE PC, which the were the triple E. Yeah, they I had one down. of them. It was my first laptop. Exactly, and they were nice little systems. And everyone that I knew that bought it were hackers that wanted to tear it apart and up uh, change it. Yeah, but even then, it was it was two hundred dollars to get into that job. Exactly, and, and you got you got a four gig solid state hard drive, and that was it. You know. <laughs> that that was basically what you got for your for your two hundred bucks and a Ryan Linux. Yep, perfect. And like I said, it's if if Chrome OS was actually put on on a machine that was hundred fifty two hundred dollars maximum maximum, it might have taken off because if this was a perfect machine to give to to your mother or grandmother. I don't think it would have taken off because again, uh, the big requirement there you have to have an internet connection, and it just is a fallacy that you're always going to have one when you need one that's that's true but you you get my point that this is a perfect this could have been a perfect system to give to your mother or grandmother who just checks her emails you know because it's a it's a secure web browser and most people who are of that age you know just web browse anyways it's 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 a good it's it's a good idea bad execution I think well, I agree. I think I agree with Ben on that. I think it was a good idea, but poorly executed. But it's largely a moot point anymore now because tablets have thoroughly killed the netbook market. That's yeah. that's true. And uh, one thing that's really interesting is Chrome and Android is actually unified. They just released the Chrome browser beta for Android, and it is the full Chrome browser on Android. It's actually amazing because it's not just a WebKit browser. It's, it is Chrome. It is I'll Chrome. Run on my terminal. And my tablets, uh, I, I think I mentioned to you I got an LG uh, Optimus. Yes. Well, I ended up getting rid of that. Well, we still got it, but it went to my son. And I got the Galaxy Tab 7. Ooh. Yeah, which is not, not, the, not the new Super Tab 7. This is the older one, the, the first Galaxy Tab. Oh, the one that ran at 2.2? Yeah, this one's been hacked to run 4.1. Ooh. <laughs> so, you, so you rooted that sucker. Yeah. Was it easy? I don't know. I didn't do it. Somebody oh. else did. <laughs> okay, okay. It's a, but uh, so how are you enjoying their first taste of ice cream sandwich? Um, honestly, I don't see a noticeable difference between it and any of the earlier ones. Really, it's it, again, it's all cosmetic. Internally, hmm. it runs the same. It's the same old story of the OSs have converged so much that it just doesn't matter. Hmm. Okay. Cosmetically. Um, I installed a bunch of hacks to make it act, actually act more like a like a uh, an iPod, believe it or not. <laughs> I write because you know what? There's nothing wrong with the iPod's interface. It's the API that has issues. Well, it's uh, what I, what I love about the my tablet. I have the transformer, the Asus transformer, and I love it. It's a uh, you know I go around the house. I use it uh, all the time. It has a great screen. It's got the uh, 
it, it's it's just a great computer. Asus makes great hardware. And uh, last I heard, Hasbro was actually suing Asus because the 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 second Transformer tablet is called the Transformer Prime. And in, in the <laughs> wow, well, I, how how do you think the um, the LG feels with their Optimus? <laughs> and they want to bring out an Optimus Prime tablet. Oh goodness. Oh, God. I figured you'd be all over that one, Ben. Oh, goodness. If they have Peter Cullen doing the commercials, I'll buy one. <laughs> really? You'll <laughs> buy an Android, Tom? Hey, I like the Androids. Good. But, I mean, like I said, for the function, for what I use a tablet for, uh, like my iPhone serves me, especially with it hacked. Okay. It's a... well, jailbroken, not hacked, but. Well, that is hacked. It's it. Well, yeah, it's, it's super user access. You rooted it. It sounds a lot better. It sounds like you're a renegade. I get it. I've got, I've got a question, actually, for uh, for Tom. Um, yes. So you, you've hacked your iPhone device. Yes. Now, is it possible for you to install any app from any place on your iDevice? Yeah, it's that they have a they have a separate app market just for jailbroken. and it's a Cina, Cydia, Cydia, C Y N D I A, C Y D I A. Excuse me. Um, okay, because even without jailbreaking. A, or rooting a uh, an uh, sorry an Android device. I just plugged it in and ran a, uh, app install on my Linux box and watched it install any app I wanted from anywhere. Yeah. So well, that's, a, that's, that's the thing. Like when when I got my first Android phone, uh, Ben asked me, "Are you going to root it?" And I said, "Why?" <laughs> so I mean, now I know why. It's hard to upgrade the OS without rooting it. Yeah, that's it's a. Uh... But I, 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 I never rude mine, and I have a new Galaxy Nexus, and I absolutely love it. This thing has a screen that is amazing. And it, it, like I said, I, I, I love the face unlock, and I love the fact that I, I have the NFC chip in there, and I can, like, uh, you know, pay for food at a fast food place by just waving it over the thing. And every, every time. As a, as a computer security guy, that really scares me. It, well, it's like the RFID chips that they were using in credit cards that were not encrypted. I mean, my God, walk through with an RFID reader and you've got everybody's credit card information. Well, actually, I have to put in my PIN first to activate the uh, the, the card information. If it's not just automatically always on there. So I had to consciously do that, put that on there. As soon as the payment's on, it locks itself again. So it's, I'm it's, sorry. It's still a vastly bad idea. Yes. <laughs> like just speaking as a security guy. It it scares me to think that they they people are trusting enough to do this. Well, it also has an F- NFC reader, and you'd be amazed at how many things have NFC chips nowadays. I I I put on an NFC reading program on there, I just start waving stuff, and I see, oh, this has a chip on it. This has a chip on it. Why yep. would this have a chip on it? For a NetRise network admin, that scares the crap out of me too. I mean, most of the people out there still use the password of password. Yeah. Yeah, I found a list of the ten most common passwords, and password was number one on the list. Yeah, almost as common is one, two, three, four. <laughs> well, people just want to put put in any password and get back to work. That's the problem. It's a, you know, it's a, biometrics is becoming a big thing, and every laptop I've seen new nowadays has this fingerprint reader in there, and that's an absolute joke too. Well, what about face unlock? Are you okay with that? I'll be honest. I mean, just like with the fingerprint, I mean, you take a photocopy of somebody's fingerprint or you take a picture of their face. Boom. There goes that security. It doesn't work. Okay. Well, the DNA readers aren't out yet. But retina scanners are. Yes. And you got to gouge a guy's eyeball to fake that one. 
<laughs> which Wesley Snipes did, by the way, a Demolition Man. It was kind of cool. Yeah. But retina scanning technology is available now. A Demolition Man, but... Sorry? I said that that's probably the only thing that was cool about Demolition Man. Oh, Sandra Bullock in tight pants. Point. <laughs> but, uh, and the whole President Schwarzenegger joke. Oh, God. Now they Those two have a habit of exchanging, like, uh, between Sylvester Stallone and... And uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, they they take turns sniping at each other in their films. I noticed. So, the, uh, but yeah, for for security purposes, the idea of paying for something with your phone strikes me as devastatingly stupid. It's it's, you know, Japan and Korea are doing that big time now. Yeah, I, and I wonder where the largest amount of credit card fraud is right now. Point taken, point taken. It's, But no, it's actually, you know, this actually is more secure than a wallet. Somebody steals my phone, they have to be able to unlock it to get to my information. They don't need to steal your phone. They just need to wait for you to use it and catch a packet. Yeah. Okay, well, that's... You yourself said you had a reader that you were using, and this is just a little simple thing. Think about the people who do this as a, quote, profession. They've got stuff that's a lot more sophisticated. I didn't... Realize that I didn't think about that. I, I, I thought I was not going to use that function anymore, are you? <laughs> it's a prepaid card that's not tied to my bank accounts. Okay, well that's a little better. Yeah. Then you're only out whatever's on the card. And I only put like twenty bucks on it at a time. You see, that's actually smarter security than sorry than worrying about whether or not somebody can intercept your signals. Well, it just made sense to me. I, I mean, I wasn't going to like tie my main bank account to it. That that was just common sense to me. I was like, but oh, there I are can... people out there that thick. Well, there are people out there that don't think, and they're the biggest hazard of all. Well, it's, it's human beings. Well, let, let's talk about security for a moment. And uh, last year, last year there were uh, several instances where uh, w- one of the fallacies <clears throat> that actually Apple is guilty of is the advertisement that uh, that their products are impervious. <clears throat> well, and we can argue no, about I, semantics, I, but that really is what they're saying, and. Semantics are a big deal. Uh, I mean, because when those advertisements were out, there were no viruses for Macs in the wild. And for the longest time, the only virus that was in the wild was one that was created by Apple and their people. And it was never released in the wild. Now, But, but, people, Apple, but they still have – the Apple users still have this idea that their computers are impervious to penetration. Yep. When and, in fact – and the result of that is that they're wide open. And, I mean – Lean over the table, hand back the Crisco. And, you know, the one thing that we have to look at is uh, the way that Apple responds to, to, to vulnerabilities versus Microsoft. Microsoft actually has a really good track record of, of really quickly patching vulnerabilities. Apple oh, takes oh, crap. Apple takes it, twice as long. I've looked at the numbers. The standard Microsoft reaction to a vulnerability is, A, we don't have that vulnerability. B, what vulnerability? C, oh, we're working on it. D, we'll release something soon. E, we've released something, but it doesn't do anything. And in F, we finally have a solution. I've, I've seen the numbers, Tom, and I've seen that, that Apple takes twice as long to patch a vulnerability. I'm not saying that they do. I am saying that Microsoft, I mean, Apple will generally admit to a vulnerability. Patching is a different thing. Microsoft does the standard Microsoft thing of deny, deny, deny. Well, you know, it's kind of important to deny to a group of hackers that, oh, you get it get in this way. It's a people. It's not the hackers that need to know this stuff. They already know it. Yeah. Well, another thing is that 
you know, in the in the yearly Pwn to Own contest, uh, historically, what's the first platform to fall, guys? Historically? Historically, actually, it's been Adabe, at which point it doesn't matter what your operating system is. Adabe has huge backdoors in their software. Uh, the biggest hacking moment in history uh, just recently exploited a backdoor in Adobe Acrobat Reader. Yeah, just Reader. Oh, Adobe, okay. Adobe, yeah. sorry. That's one of the reasons why Jobs refused to have Flash running on the iPhone was because of all the vulnerabilities in Flash. Well, well, Flash is Flash is Flash, and I, I can't defend Flash because I personally hate writing for it. And uh, as a, as a web designer, I'd actually be happier the moment we move away from Flash. But the thing is, HTML5 is is a unicorn because what people call HTML5 now is basically CSS3 cobbled together with jQuery scripts that uh, kind of work. And really, the one stop solution for the same effect is flash but flash yep. requires a plugin and and there is no perfect answer and uh, the stuff that they call html5 is really jquery well and flash is less uh flash is less perfect than uh or sorry sorry it's not very good it, it honestly isn't it's poorly designed it's poorly executed and it makes me cringe every time i go on a page and it's all flash yeah i don't design flash it causes pages. the computer to draw to slow down to a screaming halt it's just it's no it, it needs to go away. Flash really does. It needs to die. Animated SVG is out there, but they're not adopting it. Well, that's and web that's, standards, and uh, you know we talk about web standards, and web standards are a completely different animal than than most techno- technological standards because web standards is basically you have a bunch of these guys at W three that are they're like we would like this, please, asking like these big companies like like you know Oliver. Twist like, please, sir, may I have some more? And and uh, and you have all these weird bastardized codes where you have to like dash moz dash and dash webkit dash. And I'm a web designer, so yeah, it, it kind of pisses me off when when border radius is is such a weird standard that you know. Actually, I have to give Microsoft some credit that nine is actually almost standards compliant, kind of. <laughs> Look, look, after designing for IE6, 9 is is almost an apology. I, believe me, I mean, I, I, I've been working with Internet Exploder ever since the first version. And you I, poor it was, bastard. Huh? <laughs> he said, and, you poor bastard. Yeah, well, believe me, I mean, I was part of the Windows 95 beta support team at Microsoft. Oh, God. So, I mean... It, it, make up your own rules and try and force everybody to do it. And fortunately, it didn't work in that case. Yeah, and the, you know the you know uh, Netscape took off, and and then IE you know shipped uh, shipped on every computer, and people yeah. were too lazy to load something new. So, well, yeah. What I loved is how the uh, the courts told uh, Microsoft you're not allowed to make it, so you cannot uninstall Internet Explorer. So they built it in as a central part of Windows 98. So if you Sorry, and then said, you go ahead and remove it, but it'll make your computer fail. Yeah, because they made Windows Explorer part of Internet Explorer, and I don't know how they did that. I, I, I'm I don't still, know why they did that. I, I'm, I'm still well, shaking my head at how they were able to cobble it into, this, into the, the main you know, file explorer system like that. I can't understand how they did that. Oh, I can understand how they did, and I understand why they did it. It's because it's the 500-pound gorilla. You know, Netscape was becoming too popular. Internet uh, Microsoft was not seeing any revenue because of that, 
So what do they do? The standard techniques of FUD. Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Exactly. And they use their monopoly to drive Netscape out of business. That's why we don't have Netscape. But it still didn't kill the code base because that is now called Firefox. Yep, Mozilla. And uh, Mozilla gets a nice chunk of money every every year from Google, and that's the thing. Google's actually paying to have a competitor around. Well, and that's just it. I mean, the Microsoft monopoly has weakened severely in the past number of years, especially with the rise of Apple again. Well, I think I think one thing we have to mention is the rise of Google because Google is becoming more than just a search engine and marketing company. It's it's becoming a complete com- computing, you know, personal computing company with without without a, without. Oh, they do have an OS without a, without hardware base. Yeah, but it, actually now that now they have a hardware base, it goes back down to two things. I mean, the uh, stupidity slash laziness of the average user. Everybody everybody uses Google as a search engine. It's simple. It's easy. It's clean. To the point where people say, "Yeah, I googled this on Yahoo." Yeah. Wait, what? <laughs> well, actually, actually, Microsoft although I've never was, heard anybody say I googled this on Bing. Actually, actually, Microsoft is paying lots of money to different television shows. Like, uh, I think it was on Bones. You, they, they had characters say, "I binged this." Yeah, and how yeah, many and people, it sounds stupid. Yeah, how real humans don't say about it. I just remember that, and I was like, "Wait, what?" And it's you know, Microsoft paid them and. You know, I know they're trying to make a verb, just like just like uh, Google is now a verb, and or Xerox or Kleenex or Band Aid. Yeah, it's too late for that. Yeah, yeah, I remember Xerox was mad about it. I was like, Xerox, just roll with it. Yeah, free advertising. Shut up. And you know, like I said, Google is 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 now the eight hundred pound gorilla in the room because Google is a powerhouse. Google is going to change how we look at how computing's done and they have had mis- they already have with with the introduction of android i mean the tablet market would not have taken off as it did without android i mean i'm sorry ipad wasn't going to do it by itself and the thing that people always forget is yes app ipad is the market shareholder of of tablets right now might be for a couple of years still but you know it's dropping it, it, it's 70 percent now 70 percent wait what's the other 30 percent Android. We don't know. That's just it. We don't know what the future is going to hold. I mean, technology is changing so rapidly that we can't say. I mean, who's okay. gonna, you know, Windows 8 might be a, a monster tablet machine. I won't use it on my desktop. Even if I was inclined to use a Windows machine, I would look at this and go, uh, no. And I know that it's going to drive more and more people to Linux because Linux at least still has a start button. <laughs> Oh, boy. I mean, you know what happens on Windows 8 if you click the start button? It takes you back to that stupid panel thing. Metro. Yeah. People aren't going to like that. They are not going to be happy. You can disable because... that in, 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 the, in, the, uh, in the config file. Yeah, exactly. You have to hack the registry, basically, to get it to change. See, How many average users are going, to look at, are going to look at Windows 8 and say, do you have something more like Windows 7? Well, you wouldn't believe how many Windows 7 systems I've had to hack to make it look like XP. <laughs> exactly my point. They had well, XP came out. Uh, Microsoft did something clever. They included the option to make it look like Windows Classic, which meant ninety five, ninety eight. Yeah, that's true. It's but uh, and ninety five still had the old program manager from Windows three point one. Well, the thing is, I I turned I turned all that Astra stuff off of uh, of it was an Astra then it was something else. All that Arrow Arrow. I turned Arrow off on the XP because. I thought it was ugly. 
That was Arrow was on seven. Okay, it was it was it was the other one. It was Astra, I think. On on XP, I turned that crap off because it was ugly. I, I liked the classic menu better. I just liked it better. I'm, I'm weird that way, but uh, it wasn't so much Aster as it was a disaster. Oh, oh, but yeah. One thing I love about the uh, one thing I love is th- this machine of mine, the one I built. It's a it's a, it's a nice system. It's it's got a it's it's got a, a AMD uh, uh, Phenom on it. Uh, quad core it's got eight gigs of ram it's it's a nice system it's and it's lasts me about four years now it's a good system and uh oh i just helped a friend buy a new computer last week we went to a comp usa one of the few left in the united states and uh actually tom you would know this where this comp usa it's off of 121 tom is that the one in arlington no it's the it's the one it's the one in uh it's almost grapevine it's it's more of the uh you, you know the area oh mckinney yeah yeah yeah, I went there with my friend Jason, and uh, he was looking at computers. He had he had three specifications for a laptop he wanted. He wanted a laptop that had a 10 key on it. He wanted a laptop that had lit keys. And he wanted a laptop that had a good screen. And it turns out the only computer in the in the whole Comp USA that, that was a laptop that had these three specs was a gaming machine. It was an Asus Republic of Gamer. <laughs> so he walked out of that room with a 17.1 HD screen laptop with with uh, with a Blu-ray drive, 12 gigs of RAM, and 3 gigs of video memory on 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 board, and it's and he's going to do Facebook with it. Yep. Um, spreadsheets. Oh, oh yeah, he definitely needs that sort of power for a spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> or we could buy him an Apple too and put VisiCalc on it. <laughs> but but this machine was fantastic. I mean, this thing we threw whatever we wanted to at it, and it just looked at us like, okay, when are you going to give me something to do? This thing flew. But on the bright side, I mean, we joke about stuff like that. I I applaud some of the people who buy it because they realize they're going to be using this for a good number of years, and they're planning ahead for that. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm thinking of getting picking on it myself. It was actually. For, for the specs, it was relatively cheap for a laptop. Actually, it performs better than most of the desktops they had in the store. This thing, this thing only costs about twelve hundred bucks. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just. But it's also. Uh, the, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say I just helped my mother buy a laptop. Uh, got an Asus Aspire, had the um, i3 2.2 gig uh, gigahertz, four meg of RAM or four gig of RAM on there, and it's a nice HDMI out. It's a nice little system, and it will last her a good long while. Yeah. Well, there is the question of how much processing power is actually needed. Your average user who thinks he knows about computers will say that he needs this, that, and the other thing. And then you look at his computing habits and you say, no, you could get by with a 486 with 4 megs of RAM. <laughs> the problem, I mean, one of the things about process, when we talk about processing power is um, back from a decade ago when I went to college, I took a programming course, and I mean, like I said, I grew up programming in, with 1.4K of RAM, and we were given an assignment, and I'm watching these people turn in reams of paper with their code, and I turn in one page. All this processing power and all this memory and everything that we have nowadays, a lot of these programmers are lazy, and they don't look for the most efficient system. Absolutely. And, I, just and, finished and, a, uh, I just finished a programming course. On Microsoft Visual C Sharp. Oh, God. And, yeah. Um, first thing I did was I looked at the, uh, the, the table of, uh, of data types that were available. And it's like, okay, let's see. Boolean requires 16 bits. 
Wait, what? Wait, wait, what? <laughs> 16 bits for a Boolean? Isn't Boolean just yes, no? Yes, yeah, it's, it's one, one bit, bit of data. They're using 16 bits to hold it. I mean, I could, I could see the thing 8 just because it's requiring one character space. But still. That's... Yeah, I, 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 my primary like, programming language of choice is Pascal, which does use 8 bits normally. But Free Pascal has the option to bit sorry, to bit pack booleans. So you can have eight booleans in one byte. And this oh. is still we're still talking a, a modern compiler. The latest version came out like last week. And um it, it it's a thirty-two bit compiler. But the code it produces is so tiny and it's right once compile anywhere. I take the same code, I recompile it on a Mac, I recompile it on a Windows box, it all still works. Well, I'm working at, in some of the programming I've done, I was happiest when I was learning assembly because you got into the guts of the stuff, eliminated everything. I mean, you had to think about how you were going to program this stuff. Yeah, you ever hand-assembled code? Yeah. I did that once for the 6502. I won't do it again. <laughs> Place I'm working at, I learned assembly just because I wanted to program for Stella. So. <laughs> Place I'm working at now is, uh, is using Fox Pro still. Let's see. Fox Pro, that was uh, written by Borland, wasn't it? Yeah, before it got bought out. Yeah. Fox Pro's, uh, I'm trying to think of who's making Fox Pro now. Microsoft, actually, they discontinued it. Yeah. yeah Here's a big question, though. Is it working for them? It's working for them. It's uh, it's kind of an interesting system, It's uh, but it's it's a system nonetheless. If it's working <laughs> for them, I suggest they do not upgrade. And uh, what my what my what my dad did was I was telling him I was learning how to you know basically do Fox Pro commands. My dad says it's a lot like Pascal, isn't it? And I'm like, I don't know, I never used it Pascal. Is. Fox Pro is basically they took uh, Borland took their flagship product Turbo Pascal and turned it into a database management system, which wasn't that rough considering that Pascal is primarily used where it's used seriously at all for managing large amounts of data. See, okay. I mean, with databases, I mean, I was started off using DBase, DBase one, two, and then three, and I mean, I, nowadays I use MySQL. It's lovely little system and expand. Um, I love the versatility with it. Okay, let's just get this straight because I've heard this from many different people, talked to many different programmers, and uh, we're going to end the show in the next five minutes anyway. So uh, is it SQL or Squill? I've heard programmers say, oh, yeah, I use Squill all the time. I'm like, Squill? I always hear I, I hear Squill and SQL. What is it? I have never heard Squill. I've heard Squill. I've heard neither. I call it SQL. <laughs> it was always SQL to me. But I don't use it a either because if I need a database management system, I write it in Pascal. <laughs> I probably feel comfortable with uh, with Fox Pro because that that's what I do for databases. Just write it in Pascal because yeah. Pascal rocks at doing databases. See, and like I said, with DBase three, DBase three was uh, a very simplified version of SQL, and I just upgraded from there. Mm. Okay, it's a uh, well, you know, like I said, it's uh, I've heard Squill once or twice, and. I, that made me scratch my head for a minute. Like Squill, it's a, it's it like a, you know. I say Asus, and I've heard people say Asus, and uh, you know, I'm not Taiwanese, so I don't know. Well, well, what what's the correct pronunciation? Is it Asus? Well, I mean, I come from a Greek mythology background, so I've always said like Asus. Oh, uh. you know, like Asus. <laughs> Yo, Adrian. Oh God, that's bad. Okay, so uh, so like like I said, Daniel, right now I have two Android devices and uh, a Windows 7 64-bit, of course, PC. Uh, Tim, what do you have? 
I've got a uh, Core i3 running uh, L Ubuntu, a Pentium 4 running uh, X Ubuntu, a uh, HP uh, Xeon system running Ubuntu, and uh, three Android tablets and phones on top of that. Okay, so Tim is obviously the Linux advocate. Well, yeah. How many, well, how... see, I, well, I'm not, I'm not going to get on my soapbox today again. <laughs> okay, but you have had some conversions in the past. Oh, yeah. All right, uh, Tom? Well, my main system is my MacBook Pro running a uh, Intel Core 2 Duo 2.4 gigahertz systems. I have two Hackintoshes running Intel processors, quad cores, uh, three point, uh, no, 2.8, I think. Uh, I have three Windows systems running, one running 98, one running XP, and one running Windows 7. I have uh, my main server, which is running Red Hat Enterprise 4.0. Uh, I have two Red Hat systems uh, for personal use here. I have one Ubuntu and one Asterisk system. And uh, then I, on my Mac, of course, I'm running Virtual PC, in which I've got everything from Windows uh, 3.11 to DOS 5 and DOS 6 uh, to OS 2 uh, and several variations of Linux as well. All right. Uh, and that reminds me. Why would you even bother with OS 2? Because I like OS 2. Oh, and I, and I still have my Commodore 64 running as well. Wow, those things can just run, can't they? Oh, yeah. But uh, that actually reminds me, uh, really quickly, there was one video I saw that was that makes you sort of respect Microsoft and the, the fact that they always keep backwards compatibility. Someone took a virtual machine and installed Windows 1 all the way to Windows 7, just upgrading, 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 and you know, every, Windows 1 programs run on Windows 7. I thought that was kind of cool, so... I have a couple of reasons to respect Microsoft, it's just, such as the fact that uh, they are providing financial assistance to Xamarin for the promotion of the Mono uh, uh, Common Language Interface, which allows C-sharp programs written on Microsoft Windows to run flawlessly under Unix and Mac OS. It's just that the reasons I have to respect them are vastly overshadowed by everything else. <laughs> the only reason I had to respect Microsoft, they screwed the pooch on. Uh, the best technical tool I had ever used was a Microsoft Knowledge Base, and then they changed it. And everything that was good and efficient about the Microsoft KB went right out the window. Ugh. Well, well, but then the, they had to. Uh, the big joke about that was when the Microsoft Knowledge Base was running its best, it was running on IBM DB2 on OS2 servers. Wow. So, of course, after the, that came out and Microsoft became a bit of a joke about it, they changed it to where it was running on um, NT servers with uh, whatever the hell database system Microsoft was using then. And it just, the transfer from Unix to, X, uh, to NT on uh, uh, Hotmail was minor in comparison to what happened with the KB at that time. Wow. Well, I mean, Windows NT has always been sort of a joke. I think the main reason they, they switched over to it in the XP kernel was to salvage something from that disaster. Yep. Because they when they brought it when they trotted it out, they said this is going to replace Unix. This is going to be a better Unix than Unix. And now even Macs are running Unix. Well, it's like the old saying, if at first you don't succeed, you're using Microsoft products. <laughs> you you guys just aren't gonna give Microsoft a, a, a fighting chance, are you? I mean I mean the thing the thing is with the new Nokia Lumina, I, I think they're gonna shock you in the next six months. Only if there are unclosed circuits on the outside of the phone. Which, if it's running Windows, I would not be surprised. 
Microsoft has had a fighting chance for the last 30 years. Okay. Okay. We don't, need, we don't need to give them any more chances. We suffered enough from their chances. Guys, ask Stacker. Ask so many more. Because I will tell you, the instant that I heard about Linux, I jumped ship. Okay, because I was using DOS up till that point. Okay, like, and this was 96 when I switched to Linux. Okay, Windows 95 and Windows 3.1 had been out, and I was still sticking to DOS. Well, DOS 5 was probably the best system they've ever put out. 622 came close. Yeah, I was running 622 because I needed uh, certain device drivers support that was only available in 622. But when I heard about Linux, it was see a Microsoft. Wouldn't want to be a. Well, okay. It's, I guess that's I guess that's fair. It's a, you know, like I said, I, I think that the problem with the problem is, you know, I honestly think that they have a good idea with the Metro design language, especially with smaller form factors. I think it actually is a mistake to move it onto desktops, but we shall see. We shall see. It's a. Be, be, but like I said, I am backing Google because I think that Google has so much, you know. Data, so much data on people's day-to-day use of what they need. That, that they actually know what they need. Yeah. As opposed to, hey, let's try this. This might be neat. Well, and see, seems I, to be I, Microsoft's I, plan. This stuff. Uh, Apple, well, Microsoft, like I said, has never innovated anything. Nothing. Um, Apple hasn't had that many innovations themselves. Well, Apple hasn't changed their UI language in 10 years, and that kind of scares me. And actually, if you looked at my desktop, you'd see I'm still using stuff from before they changed the UI last. <laughs> I have my close button on the left side of the screen where Windows keeps its window application button because I don't like closing my windows when I'm trying to maximize them because I just missed. <laughs> well, That uh, was something clever Apple did. I, I cheerfully stole that and put it on my Linux desktop. <laughs> and uh, one and thing... They've had, some, they've had some hits and misses. I mean, FireWire was a great thing. But it wasn't adopted. Well, the problem with FireWire was it, it was a whole it was a whole Betamax versus VHS thing again. Exactly, and USB, I mean, just propagated. Uh, FireWire eight is still was also Apple. Yep. Yeah, now, like I said, it was, it, it was just like it was just like VHS versus Betamax. It didn't didn't the what's his name own both of them? No, they were competing systems. Okay. Yeah, Sony owned Betamax, and uh, I can't remember who owned VHS. Philips. But, I mean, yeah, I, I look at uh, what's coming out now with Thunderbird, and I see a lot of good things for Thunderbird because it's currently the fastest transfer system out there. And being able to use it for things from everything from video on up. That's, that's so, true. But 90, the... 90% of what people use external connection systems for is storage. Storage or human interface devices. There's yep. no way a human can keep up with even USB 1. And you don't need to go faster than eSATA for a hard drive because the hard drive can't go faster anyway. That's true. And one thing to remember is I, th- I think personally, and, and, and we, I think Apple's actually making a better decision by teaming up with Intel with, uh, with Thunderbird because they're actually putting, you know, they can actually put Thunderbird on non-Mac, uh, har- you know, hardware. And yeah. that, that makes it a much smarter idea versus, versus, oh, here's FireWire. And by the way, only cameras and a couple other things use it kind of maybe a little well, bit. The only thing that used FireWire were cameras and storage. And that's because it was DB cameras that held a lot of data and needed a fast that transfer system. Yep. And hard drives, same thing. There was no yeah. eSATA yet. Yeah, and I love eSATA. I mean, that's, uh, I mean, 
I, I just love Seda, and uh, it, it's <laughs> one thing. It's not. Even, it's 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 more of a cosmetic reason why I love E Seda over IDE. Even with the speed increase, you know, I just love the fact that it cleans up my the insides of my cases so much because I don't have these big old ribbon cables anymore. See, but well, me, that's I, the I, very I, reason. Sorry, that's one of the best reasons to adopt it from a technical standpoint too, because those big old ribbon cables. They cut into your airflow. You yeah. want to think about what that'll do to your system's temperature inside? Well, I got six fans running on my machine, but but it will always cause a chuckle to me because we've gone full circle. We've gone from the serial cables used on the Commodore systems to the parallel systems used on IBM, and then back to serial. Full yeah, circle. And even, even the uh, the user, sorry, the uh, the internal uh, buses now PCIe is a serial standard. And but you know talking about th- Thunder Thunderbird and uh, that's the name of the uh, new Apple, isn't it Thunderbird? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's still going to have a, t- a tough time competing against USB because USB is so entrenched. They have a chance now because they're teaming up with IBM, but it's going to be a fight. Well, let's not kid ourselves; it's going to be a fight. Oh, it always is. People are resistant to change. I mean, how many people own laser discs? Um, the only time I ever used a laser disc was when my dad was uh, uh, head of IT at a at a university, and uh, <laughs> yeah. you can figure out the rest. There are some things that are just too way ahead of their time. I mean, almost nobody owned a laser disc then, but everybody owns a DVD now. Well, the only reason to own a laser disc now is just so you can watch the highest quality of the original Star Wars trilogy unaltered. Uh, <laughs> no, I wouldn't even agree with that. You you can get the same print put on a DVD and it'll look just as good. Yep. Laserdisc does not even sorry is not even as good as DVD. Well, oh no, the, Laserdisc is not. But that was that was the highest quality version released because the DVD version is just the Laserdisc version. They didn't even they didn't even like grab a good master. They just grabbed the Laserdisc master and put it on DVD and say, oh, by the way, here it is. That's what LucasArts did. Yeah, but at least you don't have to flip the stupid thing over. <laughs> but then on the flip side, it's a, no pun intended, on the flip side, like, LaserDisc was the only place you could get a good quality version of uh, The Wizard of Speed and Time. So, I've never seen that, you know? Oh, download it. You can download it legally because the person who owns the rights to it, to the electronic version of it, uh, says, take it. Take it. Wow. Yeah, there's a, there's a whole story behind The Wizard of Speed and Time and... Uh, what happened with it and the parallels between what happened in the film and what happened in real life. Wow. That's, that's uh but yeah, like I said, the only, my dad was uh, the head of it at a university and uh, let me uh, play with the laser disc. They have there. They had a laser disc player. It was, I was like, what, what is this? Oh God. Everybody, I'll tell you, almost everybody has used a laser disc and I can tell you how. Okay. If you ever played the game Dragon's Lair or Space Ace or a number of yeah. other games like this, those were Laserdisc games. Yeah, hey, Neil, this is the part where you can jump back in. But nobody knew that the technology was in use in the devices. Exactly. But they still used it. Yeah, it's Laserdiscs. It's, uh... But yeah, Laserdiscs were, as a optical media storage, was way ahead of its time. And I remember the... in 1958. Yep. And I remember the first CD games, too, with the full motion video. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, but uh, let's wrap this up. Uh, this was our uh, special on technology. 
as a whole. Uh, I am your host, Ben, with... And I'm TV's Mr. Neal, and I play the part of the audience in this episode. And Timothy Groves, Linux advocate. <laughs> and I'm Thomas Devore, anti-Microsoft advocate, and the person behind 910CMX. It's 910CMX.com. And we're saying goodnight.